Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, how are you, my friend? Doing so great. Also with us in Chicago, it's the godfather himself, Dave Harburger. Cheers, everybody. Let's do this. Last but not least, it's our resident red mage, Zach Colhan. Hey, it's great to be here with you guys tonight. On this week's episode, we are going to look at the results from GPLA as well as last weekend's Modern Challenge. Then in our dive down, we're going to look at the hate cards of Modern, specifically Surgical Extraction. And finally, in the wind down, we're going to talk a little bit about tournament prep ahead of SCG Regionals this weekend. This week on The Breakdown, we're going to focus on a single event, specifically GPLA, primarily because we actually had a chance to watch this event happen in real time, thanks to Channel Fireball for carrying it on stream on Twitch. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, Yeah, it was a fun way to color the weekend. It was great to see matches. It was also great to see dumb stuff like LSV in the background of Huey and Marshall eating what seemed to be a burrito bowl from Chipotle. And just kind of <laughs> mugging, mugging for the camera for some reason. It's good to see all those people back, though. Do you think yeah. he's sponsored at this point? For sure. 100%. Chipotle, get at us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chipotle, please extend your sponsorship. So uh, how much of the coverage did you guys get to watch? I was able to watch quite a bit of rounds four, five, and six. And then unfortunately I had things going on and I was able to watch the end of the finals on day two. I was able to uh, keep up with the rest of it via chat with you guys and online, but I was able to watch probably a good solid three hours. Yeah, I watched as much as I could on the actual weekend and then I work from home. So I had it on in the background all day, like the rounds I missed. I think I watched probably 10 rounds in total. I watched most of the pauper MCQ finals as well or uh the the top eight anyway so i watched a lot of magic this weekend with uh my angry child and there was there were so many rounds like you know like one round might they might show three games from it which was awesome i'm sorry three matches from it which was awesome it was really great i saw tons of different decks i saw tons of different pilots really interesting pilots of different decks you know one of the one of my favorite moments was uh in round two the feature match was the guitar player i think from corn from corn was was on Bant Spirits and won. And then he did a deck tech afterwards, and it was awesome. Only in LA. It was just cool to see like interesting non-magic people kind of get a, a couple of moments to, to be there, too. Yeah, there was all kinds of notable notable moments that happened this weekend that we're mostly going to talk about the gameplay, but I think that we should say uh, congrats to Dana Fisher for being the youngest person to make the, the second day of competition in a Grand Prix main event. That was pretty awesome to see. Um Mm-hmm. And there were a couple other kind of really interesting moments like that, but maybe let's hop into some highlights about the Swiss. They were talking before everything even started about their called shots, right? Yeah, uh, specifically LSV in the pregame was talking about kind of his lay of the land of modern, and you know I turned on the coverage immediately when it came out on Saturday morning. Uh, yeah, on Saturday morning, so you know it was interesting to hear him say, and he basically was like, "Is it Phoenix and Dredge are the number one and number two best decks in modern?" Faithless Looting is the best card in Modern, and LSV's big called shot was that Dredge and Is It Phoenix will definitely be the uh, t- at the top of decks played in the in the metagame. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They were everywhere. And several times we got to see that mirror play out. It's interesting to have us be talking about these decks for so long and then see them play out in front of us. And it's just, I don't know. It's fun. They've featured Phoenix versus Dredge at least three different times on camera that I can remember and possibly absolutely. a couple more times after that. It was um, it was really cool to see the matchup between basically, and I think they really are the two kind of best decks right now, or at least kind of two of the most prevalent decks at the moment and just see that the kind of small interactions between the deck you know the the decks where you know how fast can is it phoenix get its thing in the ice online versus how fast can um can dredge get their dredge engine up and going so that they can avoid dying to just phoenixes how many um how many times can creeping chill save a dredge player from getting just basically burned out in the first couple of turns so there was a lot of different kind of moments in that and it really felt like there's some really swingy games between the two decks because they can both do so much damage so fast mm-hmm. yeah uh, there are several times where i'd be watching and the commentators would be saying all right the dredge player has one more turn and after that phoenix is going to win and then you would see them have this dredge where it was conflagrate creeping chill narcomeva etc and they would whiff it out and then phoenix would do the exact same thing on their turn by playing a tt and flipping it and getting back birds and it it, it felt very powerful and almost like watching a legacy game. Yeah. Shane, what did you think about watching as a dredge player? So you're the only dredge player on the cast. What did you think about watching it from that side? The son of a son of a dredgeman. Thing on the ice did look like a real pain. I haven't actually played the matchup myself yet, surprisingly. Um, especially like in, I remember this game in round 10 when the Is It Phoenix player seemed to have like 10 things in the ice in their deck. You know, there was just one after the other. If one got removed from a lightning axe, another one was following it right back up. I mean, if you want to talk like actual strategy considerations, I think that, you know, lightning axe is super important post-sideboard for the dredge player to find along with the abrupt decay. Because getting your creatures bounced is just so much worse than having them killed like we talked about last week. Yeah. And this is one of those matchups, of course, where the Is It players were going so hard into surgical extraction. And uh, you, we will hear that a couple more times as a theme as we go through the Swiss here. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're in a lot of the games I saw, surgical felt like they made the game unwinnable or the hill too big to climb for the dredge play after a certain point. Being able to get rid of that blood gastronarch amoeba, as we mentioned, is very powerful. So the other big thing that I saw on day one was, man, it just felt like on camera there were tons and tons and tons of Tron decks. So much Tron early on, yeah. Very weird, right? I mean, it didn't feel like the deck was doing that great, but it also felt like it was definitely keeping up with everything. Yeah, I don't feel like Tron is that great. I mean, it's like, Whoa. it's like, I mean, no, I mean, this is a man who has a Russian Tron, Tron deck. Mid range is dead. <laughs> Control is dead. I, I don't think Tron's <laughs> dead. I think that, you know, we talked about this weeks ago, um, in terms of some of the data that's available out there, some of the 2018 GPs, Tron really showed itself as like a, maybe a little bit better than 50% deck. But what I think is really good about Tron as a tournament deck is that it's consistent and reliable against a pretty wide field. And so, you know, until I decided I was a dyed-in-the-wool dredgeman, I would have brought Tron to a tournament like this because it's, like I said, it's just consistent and is good against a pretty wide field. It's not super easily hated out. Yeah. But it's not spectacular. But I was surprised they showed so much of it. It really, I think you got a feature match in like every round game on day one. People like it. Yeah. So I mean, we saw a lot of the usual players on camera, but we did see a few spicy meatballs out there. Um, Zach, I know you said you watched a bunch. Did you see anything particularly cool or weird? 
Yeah, there are a few decks that I think would be neat to touch on. There was a Craig Wesco on the Mono White Devotion deck, which is really interesting. P- plays in a space, I think, similar to Scred, where you're using fringe lands and weird mechanics. So this was using uh, the card Nikthos to create a-, a bunch of white mana to cast big things like Quarantine Field or uh, I believe it was... Elish Norn. Elish Norn, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Quarantine Field or Elish Norn. Uh, it seemed really interesting. Also, main deck Nevermore, things like that. It seemed cool, but maybe not great against the meta it was brought in. But I think that deck could have legs after some refinement. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we only saw it kind of trip over its own feet. But yeah, exactly. It got crushed by Amulet on camera, which was too bad because I love Craig Wesco. He's such an interesting guy. <laughs> yeah, I think he's got a he's got a really good heart, and I like to see him on camera. In the next round, there was a red-black prison deck, which isn't something we've seen too much of. This was this guy's special brew for Jacob Brooks. The deck seemed neat, but it didn't really get there, and it struggled a little bit on camera. I think that it's a cool concept, but it deviates a little too far from the all-in prison plan, which I think you need to be on for decks like this. I think running prison cards alongside mid-range cards isn't exactly a great strategy. Yeah, there was some wild stuff that this in this match where, you know, there was a turn to Blood Moon against Blue White when he didn't really have any other action. You know, he pitched a Simeon Spirit Guide to cast a Blood Moon. The Blue White player didn't really have anything to do, but also Jacob Brooks didn't really have anything to do for a number of turns. And the Blue White player actually drew out of it, drew into basic islands, basically en- enough basic yeah. islands to cast Cryptic Command even, which was insane. Yeah, he, he has the Blood Moon off two basic swamps, it's worth noting. He had two basic swamps, exiled Samin Spirit Guide to have a Blood Moon. It's just, yeah. that's neat, but he did miss the red mana later. So the the spice led to some inconsistency in the mana base. And of course, we saw uh, Daniel Wong on taking turns, right? I mean, he he not only shows up against camera time, but he will go deep. He'll take a deep run in the tournaments. He goes deep every tournament, I think. I, I wasn't sure what the final record was here, but it definitely felt like, I mean, when we watched him, he was 5-0. Cause he was, cause it was in the sixth round and I, I think he might have been easily into day two and even a little bit deeper than that. Yeah. It's one of those stories where, you know, we see someone who has a deck they know and love and they bring it to tournaments and they typically go pretty deep because they know what they're trying to do and they know the metagame well enough to fight their opponents. Also, those foil cards and their quad sleeves look beautiful on camera, really sparkle. No, did you guys you notice how many foil decks people had this weekend? It was pretty it awesome. It felt like so many on-camera foil decks, you're right. It was like a celebration of modern and people who love their decks. Even when Stan and I were at that event in Milwaukee we had a couple weeks ago, I was surprised by how many people I saw that had fully foiled out Jun, Tron, etc. I think we're at a point in the format's age and the and sort of enfranchisement of the base that people are foiling out these pre-stock decks that they've had for a while. Yeah, the one, the one, this match, uh, Daniel Wong versus the, versus, um, oh, it was Tron. So the, the boss move that Daniel Wong had though <laughs> was where he cast, uh, what's that card? Undermine? Where he took someone's Karn. Oh, Commandeer. Commandeer. That's what it's called. Yeah. Normally relegated to EDH tables. Yeah. As addition, instead of casting it, you can exile two blue cards instead of paying the mana cost. Yes. So exile two blue cards. All of a sudden that card is my card. That was so, so hilarious to see happen. I don't think I would expect a Commandeer being played against me. Well, we all know how Tron works. People just kind of like drop their lands and play their cards and don't worry about what's going to happen. Do they, Shane? Pretty much, honestly. Um, <laughs> pretty much, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that was a that was like boss move number three of the weekend. So there wasn't anything, unfortunately, too wild that happened on day one, in my opinion. I mean, besides Daniel Wong going deep on day one again. Zach, take us into day two, maybe. 
So on day two, uh, on day two, going in, the decks that were undefeated in day one are Dredge, Grace's Death Shadow, Amulet, Blue Red Phoenix, and Tron. So all the information we've regaled you with these past few months has found itself materialized in this day two. Yeah, that was yeah. amazing. When I saw that the next day, I was so excited. I was like, hey, we did we did a dive down on this deck. We did a dive down on that deck. The only one of those five that we haven't done a dive down on is Tron. And we'll get to it sometime soon, I think. The only problem with our Tron dive is it'll have to be entirely in Russian because that's how <laughs> Shane's cards are printed. <laughs> well, Stan, you, 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 can, uh, you can translate for me. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little Ruski. Yeah, so if you guys do want to listen to our dive downs on these different decks, Dredge was, uh, what, episode 11? Last week, Last week yeah. Uh, Grixis Death Shadow was episode 6, Amulet was episode 10, and Blue Red Phoenix was episode 1, was the first deck our that we talked about episode. on the dive down. Yes. And then we, we did a follow-up, too, on Blue Red Phoenix and on how to beat it. We talked about Phoenix for like the first five weeks at some point in every episode, and people started getting a little bit tilted. Yeah, we're talking about it right now. Well, guess, oh, guess what? It's still here 12 weeks later. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, not to spoil. Maybe it did really well at a big tournament. I don't know. That's actually what I want to get into when we start talking about this like top 100 total decks. Was this top 100 graphic they released? Was that day two or is that just the top 100? I'm a little unclear. This is what people were using as the met- the day two meta breakdown, basically, even okay. though I'm sure that there were more than 100 people. Uh, more than a hundred people who made day two. This was, um, what was shared out as a real time indication of what the meta was like by a new yeah. service called Cardboard Live. That Very was cool. actually really cool, right? I, I mean, we could take a little aside there to thank the creators of this. Um, they sound like they have some really co- cool stuff going on, but basically it's an overlay on top of Twitch streams of magic and ostensibly any card game, I guess, where you can get some meta, you can get the places of everybody in real time. You can get information about the players who are on screen and their deck lists by clicking kind of like different hotspots on the, on your Twitch screen on your computer. Now I watch Twitch on my TV mostly. Yeah. So it wasn't really available there, but I did kind of play around with it on, uh, on my computer later. It was really cool. It works on your phone. Oh, it doesn't work on your yeah, phone. Yeah. I, I watched it on my phone and it was able to pull up deck lists and stuff. And I was like cooking or hanging out and it was just nice to be able to peek without having to minimize the window or open something on my laptop and like go find your own stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but anyway, so here's, here's the day two meta breakdown that they, uh, they put out. So I'm just going to read down this really quick. These are the top hundred total decks. Which which nicely makes a percentage, too. Yeah, exactly. So 16% Dredge, 14% Is It Phoenix. That is insane. 30% of the metagame. Was those two decks. LSV was totally right, by the way. Are they going to ban Faithless Looting? We're going to talk about that later. Spoilers. (laughs) So once you get past those two, things drop precipitously. So there wasn't another deck that was even close to double-digit meta share. From there, it goes 6% Grixis Shadow, 6% Miracles, 5% Hardened Scales, 5% Humans, 5% Mono Red Phoenix, even more Phoenixes, 5% Tron, 4% Amulet, 4% Band Spirits, 4% War Prison, 3% Affinity, 3% Rock, 3% Titan Shift, 2% Burn. So. What a, what a modern snapshot, by the way. Like, these are the amazing. By the way, there were 18 decks listed under Other as well as as part of this or at least just outside of this top 100 i think they had a list of the one ofs who were who were kind of another 18 decks but uh this this was i totally agree with stan such a representation of pretty much just what the meta is 
right now. And I feel like it's one of the first modern events that I've ever seen where there really wasn't something that was suddenly surprising emerging. Not to mention having just those weirdos in the room who are the elves person or the infect person is also very indicative of what modern's about. You have these pillars of the format and then you have these rogue tier two tier three decks that are somehow making their way into day two metagames just because they're piloted out experts and you're saying that as a someone who who has a soft spot for elves too just so we don't have anybody get get at us (laughs) right i I do love elves yeah that's a deck that i'll never take apart it's just like here you want a deck have elves and secretly win (laughs) whatever you play awesome so shane what do you think before i dive into my you know, my usual Shane stuff. Does anyone else have anything that they found surprising about this, this metagame? Uh, I'm surprised there wasn't more control. I don't know if that's just the matchup with Dredge and Phoenix is not great, but we've been seeing control pop out a little bit, and there are five miracles, and who knows how much there was otherwise, but I thought there'd be a little more representation and maybe even some Jeskai. Yeah, well, it's not an, it's not an SCG event, so there's no Jeskai control here. <laughs> that's fair. My question is, where are the Lightning Bolt decks? Well, is it I Phoenix? Guess, is, is it Phoenix? Is it Phoenix? Is it Phoenix? Phoenix? Well, Shadow is definitely not a Lightning Bolt deck. Okay, it has them. They're utility cards. I mean, where's the where's the decks that want to dome you with Lightning Bolts? And Mono Red Phoenix is the only deck that was represented in this in any numbers. No, exactly. I think I think the Burn players chose to maybe run the Mono Red Phoenix deck because that's my big thing: is where the heck is Burn? Like, Burn is supposed to be this check on the Phoenix decks, right? And it's not like Dredge is, like, walking all over Burn, even though Chill does help quite a bit. And these top five decks all seem, you know, mildly average to really weak against Burn. And it's nowhere. Except Dredge. I, I don't, I gotta say, it's probably, it's a plus mark on Dredge's side a little bit. It's definitely not mi- average to mildly weak. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's about average. I think it's maybe I think depending on how you play it, how the draws work out, I mean it could be like maybe fifty five, forty five, which is not great, right? But like I think I think these I think these decks by and large have a lot of weakness to burn, and burn's really nowhere. One thing I thought was interesting, I was doing a little research by preeminent burnman uh, Patrick Sullivan of the SCG crew and he was tweeting a conversation about is it phoenix versus burn and he says he thinks it's only medium for burn and that the phoenix player can sideboard things like spell pierce and dispel that is more powerful than what burn can be doing in the sideboard and that he really thinks that rakdos burn is actually better against phoenix right now because it's slightly faster and because you have more sorceries dispel can't do as much work against you so i thought that was an interesting thing to kind of hear from someone who's you know so steeped in piloting burn i think you're underestimating how good dredge is against burn though i'm only coming at you from the perspective of mono red phoenix but if the dredge engine is going off i mean that's not exactly i mean that's not exactly burn though i mean you've got you've got to worry about your creatures getting through so does burn like burn is playing goblin guides and swift spears no i mean i mean by and large even if it's somewhat even it's not a blowout and it's only one part of the metagame right so it's like there's all these other decks that burn can beat up on and it just didn't seem to either be there or win. And, you know, if it's a coin flip, then maybe even in a small minute, even in a tournament, you know, sometimes the coin flips just don't go your way that much. So we saw these four were prison decks and one pilot was Ari Lax. And I trust him as a pretty expert level, like metagame assessor. And I think that it's still underplayed. I think that 
War Prison is probably better than its representation is right here. Don't you think that that War Prison is another one of those decks that's just not going to ever be played that much at open format tournaments because people don't want to play it? Because a lot of people don't want to play decks that have this kind of like level of hate and just kind of like they're not that fun to pilot either. But people were doing that with KCI. It's, you know, eventually it became so obvious that they just wanted to run it. I, I think Word Prison's a little more thankless and harder to play than KCI. And I think it's also an expensive deck to pick up and play. So it's both hard to play and and not cheap to get the cards for. So you'd have to be a pretty enfranchised player or like the archetype, I think. Be really into saying, mm, no, 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 to people. <laughs> I'm sorry, no, no, in response. No. Yeah. The WinCon in Game 1 in War Prison is just Ipnu Rivulet. So you have to be prepared <laughs> to very slowly mill your opponent out because you've locked them out of all their other options. And I think in a competitive event like this, people are probably going to just scoop at a certain point. But you will always run into that one player who makes you play it out, and then you're just going 40 minutes into Game 1. So mm-hmm. I think that's one reason why people may be reluctant to pick up War or Prison. But I do think it's a powerful deck. Oh, Absolutely. And two last points I have is I think Affinity still showing up with a three of is surprising to me. Um, people have been thinking that it's seemed outmoded, hasn't got enough you know powerful pieces lately, but it's still showing up. Yeah, I mean Affinity is starting to pick up some steam again because of because of uh, Experimental Frenzy. That seems to be the the like hot tech in that deck now, which I haven't got a chance to see someone actually go off with that, but it totally makes sense. It feels like you could just draw like seven cards in a turn if you. <laughs> If you really did your, uh, you know, kind of set it up right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I played against it in Milwaukee, and that's exactly what happened. I thought I had them beat. They were down, and they ripped one from the top and then proceeded to play five cards from the top. So sometimes it do be like that. Yeah. <laughs> so in round 15, we had our traditional kind of look at the win and ends, which is what they tend to do every every round 15 of GP coverage. I, I think that there were some interesting people who made it right on the bubble who maybe we'll just recognize and say... um, Better luck next time. So Ari Lax, who you were just talking about, Shane, on War Prison, was very, very close to beating Grixis Death Shadow to be able to go in the top eight. And I think that would have eliminated the Grixis Death Shadow player that made it into the top eight. I believe it was the yeah. same player. That's correct. So that could have been a much kind of like different complexion to the top eight. And seeing a deck that's basically built around ensnaring bridge in a top eight with two hardened scales and two to is it phoenix decks could have been quite a different day so Mm -hmm. maybe next time and maybe that's more kind of like reason to think about putting um and also dredge of course maybe that's more reason to kind of consider war prison if you're not sure what to do with the meta right now in spite of what we just said about a couple minutes ago (laughs) (laughs) the uh the next match that was really interesting i thought was uh titan shift versus versus fairies that uh with yuda on on fairies which is you know awesome to see that he always brings that same deck. I know it's not really a fairies deck. It's really just kind of blue black control with bitter blossom and and spell stutter sprite. But it's it's a really powerful deck. And I think that the fact that it made it to twelve and two or whatever it was at, you know, for me, bitter blossom actually looked pretty good the couple of times that I saw this deck on camera against things like Phoenix and against things like uh, dredge, where you could just make this huge army of tokens that can help you block in the late game and also help you attack in the late game. Once you've built up a bunch yeah there's not a lot of main deck uh, or even sideboard and honestly enchantment removal going around these days so a card like bitter blossom can land and they just can't do anything about it and they have to deal with your stream of one ones yeah i mean people don't even seem to have wear tear in sideboards it's like any any enchantment you get down just kind of is there 
to stay these days, it feels like. I mean, I guess you still have uh, Nature's Claim, of course, but... Give me that Nature's Claim. Yeah. And then the last one that was interesting was, is it Phoenix versus Elves? Uh, and I think that, that this was the winner's, uh, Michael Burnett's winning in, where he had this these incredible kind of thing in the ice sequences against elves that just kept trying to restart and kept trying to restart and kept trying to restart and just couldn't quite the, get there. There was even an Ormondal that came out that kind of missed killing Burnett by one turn off of um, from the elf side, which was pretty interesting. There was one game where Burnett came back from being at five. Game two, he cast Anger the Gods on five life, and it totally went, led him to a total comeback with by following up with another well-timed TD afterwards. Yeah, it seemed like it seemed like Burnett always had it, but that I think is the hallmark of a player who knows what the heck he's doing. Yes. So top eight and top thirty-two. So why don't we take a quick look at the top eights? Shane, do you want to read us through the decks that actually made the top eight? Oh, this is going to be fast. Two is it Phoenix, two Dredge, two Hardened Scales, Titan Shift, Grixis Death Shadow. Hard stop. <laughs> Pretty sleepy, if you ask me. So these are great, fun, cool decks, but I don't think it's necessarily a great look for modern when you have an undiverse top eight. Fortunately, the modern challenge really helped establish that there might not be a best deck, maybe just a couple of great decks, but... I don't think this top eight is going to inspire anyone to jump into the format, unfortunately. And it gives fuel to the fire that Faithless Looting is a little busted, but we'll talk about that a little bit. It provides a small bridge for standard players to move over. You do have to buy expensive lands, but you have the Phoenixes. It's a good point. I mean, that's a deck that's pretty pretty close to being in range for uh, for Phoenix players, especially if you can uh, realize that Scalding Tarns are a pretty good investment in general. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are pricey, but... I think they're at a hundred bucks now. Wait, they're a hundred bucks? Yeah, they they went up like ten percent after people realized the uh, modern horizons would not contain any modern legal cards. Oh so specu- goodness! Ooh, speculation corner again. <laughs> MTG finance. finance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think I I do think that top eights like this are pretty typical of grand prix. Honestly, you often have consolidation of a few decks, and even even looking at this, there's five decks here still, even though four of them are the top of the meta share. I just don't think that having something where it feels like the meta is consolidated is really that much of a surprise at the Grand Prix level. It happens all the time. It also doesn't happen all the time, but I don't think this should be too much fuel on the fire for anybody trying to get some cards banned quite yet. Yeah, I mean, we we I jokingly alluded to a Faithless Looting ban earlier, but we've talked about these decks on the show, and none of these decks jump out as me as problematic, or I didn't see any of these decks win and go, oh, no, this is so bad. So why don't we take this and take a look at the top 32 now? So we know that Is It Phoenix won. We know that the top eight had two Is It Phoenix decks and a number of other double decks. Uh, Shane, why don't you take us through the top 32, since you look like you're about to have a kitten. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't know if I agree with you there, Zach, but I mean, we had, so our top 32 was seven is a Phoenix, and then we get to the normal decks, apparently. So we have three humans, three dredge, two were prison, two Grixis Death Shadow, two hardened scales, two green black rock, um, which they listed as Jund for some reason, um, all three of them. And then we have a bunch of one ofs, uh, Tron, Fairies, Elf, Storm, Blueless Shadow, Blue White Control, uh, the Singleton Burn, which seems insane to me, as I said before. Uh, Amulet Titan, Mono Red Phoenix, Titan Shift, and Jund. So that's really it. So basically a huge percentage of Visit Phoenix, right? What do you guys think about this top 32? Because I have things to say. 
I'm probably just going to take the words out of Shane's mouth, but I don't understand why Phoenix isn't seeing more hate unless I think it's a very reasonable explanation that everyone just wants to play Phoenix. So it's you can try to beat them or just join the party because you get to cast all your one mana cantrips. Well, that no, that's bad. That, that's a sign of a bad format, right? Where you can't beat them, so you have to join them. Drink the Kool-Aid! <laughs> what if you want to join them? What if it's not that you have to join them? What if you enjoy joining? Uh, well, we're having meetings every Thursday now, so you can just come down to the rec center. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I founded this chapter of Is It Phoenix? So, uh... <laughs> Who am I to muscle it on your turf So like come this? to my meeting. I'm not coming to your meeting. So the thing you asked, Dan, is why aren't people, like, hating it out more? And it's because it has, like, a plan A, a plan B, and, like, a plan B sub subtitle 1. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it has, it has these multiple ways to accomplish what it's trying to do. And, you know, like we talked about, it's not like Graveyard Hate is that awesome. You know, there's there's not one way to just go about defeating this deck like Dredge, right? The phrase Silver Bolts was thrown around a lot this weekend on commentary. And how that modern is a format that's defined by if you drew your hate or not, and that's it. some people complain about. And I think what yeah. you're hinting at here, or saying even directly, is that there aren't many silver bullets against this deck. And you can hate out one way, but you can't hate out all the lands, lines of attack that it has. One thing that I think is interesting is about two months ago, and I, I don't remember if this was on the podcast or not, we were talking about Is It Phoenix. It might have been in chat. And I said that Is It Phoenix, welcome to Is It Phoenix, the Delver that works. Yeah. Um, this is really starting to feel a little bit like a leg, like a legacy kind of Delver kind of metagame right now, right? Where, you know, this deck, like you said, Shane, it has a bunch of resilient, powerful threats. It has ways to get to those threats. It has ways to kind of control the tempo of the game through cantrips, a little bit of counter magic and a little bit of burn and things like that. And I just feel like it's not an unfair deck, but it is a deck that is, is highly redundant and powerful across multiple lines of play. So, um, that's it's starting to make me feel like it does remind me of kind of like old Delver days a little bit. I mean, if this deck was going to get hated out, it would have been hated out over the past month, over the past eight weeks. It's been around for quite a while at this point, you know, not in terms of modern's formats history, but it's been at the tier zero almost for months and no one seems to have figured out how to get to it. Yeah. And Shane, you have some interesting notes here about conversions. In the top, from top 100 to top 32. Yeah, so we see Blue White Miracles went from five decks to just a single copy in the top 32. Grixis Death Shadow went six to two. Mono Red Phoenix, five to one. Tron, five to one. Even Dredge went from 16 copies in the 100 to only, only three in the top 32. Uh, yet, Is It Phoenix went a full 50% from the top 100, and three of the five Humans players stuck around. I think at this point, Humans players are probably knowing what they're doing with the deck. Like, they're not just going to go randomly pick up 75, you know, Humans cards and bring it to a tournament. They're probably knowing what they're doing, whereas people might at this point be, well, I'm going to buy an Is It Phoenix, take it to this GP. Yeah, I mean, and defense is good right now, right? Is, uh, is Humans finally deciding to run her? I've seen one in main, one side for some list. I don't know about these lists at the tournament, my, so my apologies on that. But I am seeing it pop up in more dumps. Time to sleeve up abs and midrange. Right. For a while, it seemed like a the modern consensus was that Spirits was just the better evolved version of humans. But I, I feel like this tournament is really starting to challenge that notion. And I wonder whether Anafenza coupled with Meddling Mage are just so good right now in modern. Meddling Mage being a card that really rewards you if you understand the matchup and understand the card that your opponent wants to play as soon as possible, and then you just punish them and 
go wide and do what humans do. By the way, all three humans decks in the top 32 had one Anaphens and main one Anaphens at sideboard. Yeah, that is smart. And I think that definitely helped. It's like those rock decks playing Kalidus now, just because even though he's expensive, uh, he comes down and can take over a game that's trying to enact a certain strategy. So I thought nothing too ridiculous happened in the top eight. Like there wasn't, there wasn't anything that like blew me away in terms of the matchups or anything unexpected that happened. But one thing I wanted to talk about. So Michael Burnett, uh, won this thing, right? And he took it down with Izzard Phoenix as we would expect, perhaps. So when you watch Burnett play, I think it really showed and demonstrated what makes an excellent Izzard Phoenix player. And also the lines of thinking that are required for someone to win a GP. So it's not just the deck you pick up. It's how you choose to play it and how you sequence all these weird cantrips and card draw cards and card filtering cards and things like that that are in the Izzy Phoenix deck. So I'm just going to talk about turn six of game one of the quarterfinals. And so so stay with me here. I know this is going to be somewhat detailed, okay? He was playing versus Grixis Death Shadow, which is potentially a pretty decent matchup for the Grixis Death Shadow player um, if they draw well and get a clock down, right? So they're fairly deep in the game for a game of modern turn six, right? Look at how carefully Burnett sequences his play and sculpts his draw off the top of his deck, okay? So he serum visions a card to the top. Then mana morphoses to draw that card, generates some mana. He then casts the serum visions again, keeps both cards up top. To draw those cards, he then casts a metamorphose to draw the first one, then Serum Visions again to draw the second card. He bottoms both those cards off of that Serum Visions. He then casts Faithless Looting to draw two unknown cards, but at least he knew they weren't cards that he didn't want at that point. And so at this point, he can cast a Thought Scour for essentially all value if he hits another Phoenix or two, right? Because what Burnett's likely thinking about is that in this situation, he really needs to win from this position. So if he draws into a lightning bolt, or if he gets just a single phoenix into the graveyard from all this deck manipulation he's doing, that he can win. Because if he doesn't, he knows that if Rodriguez draws into something like a fetch land, he can enable a fatal push and remove one of uh, his own phoenixes and then take one of his two death shadows and make it lethal from the fetch shock damage, right? So in this turn, he looks at something like nine extra cards. He draws like eight extra cards, and he's able to control what a majority of these cards are through the sequencing and manipulation of his deck, right? So even though he doesn't ultimately find a way to get lethal in this situation, it doesn't make his line of play wrong, and in fact makes it seem pretty brilliant when you study it. Like, this is the second or third time I watched this match because I was rewatching it uh, for this podcast. And so, you know, fortunately for Bennett, Rodriguez doesn't find a fetch or something else like a dismember to lower his life total and remove a phoenix. So he's able just to chump and then get his birds back with the spells and, you know, flashback faithless looting and things like that, getting to the win. But I thought that was kind of a really awesome example of something that if you're not looking at what this person's doing, you're like, oh, they're just casting spells, yeah. right? But really what's happening is he is getting looks at as many cards as he can and controlling which cards he's drawing as much as he can. And it was utterly brilliant, in my opinion. Yeah. One one real quick takeaway I think I can add on top of that is LSV, when he was commentating on, on Is It Phoenix decks, 
uh, the, over the weekend said many times, you know, the main thing that you really want to do is see as many cards as you can before you cast Faithless Looting. And he said it over and over and over again. And the reason's pretty simple, right? Is that you want to make sure that you get as many looks into Arclight Phoenix before you get the card that lets you put Arclight Phoenix in the bin. So, um, that's just part of the line that was going on there with, with Michael Burnett in the situation that, that Shane explained. But if there's something that you're, you're thinking about when you're playing this deck or thinking about playing this deck or thinking about playing any of the Phoenix decks really with, with Faithless Looting, it's that Faithless seems to go at the end of the chain. If you have anything else to do, you should do everything else first and then do Faithless Looting. And especially, you know, I think that this even applies to things like whether you should Faithless Looting on turn one just because you have the mana to do it. Don't do that. Save it for turn two where you can do some other stuff with it, okay? Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, this deck is wild because sometimes you don't even want to cast your turn one Serum Visions or Opt. You want to yeah. save them up for your broken plays when you're getting a couple birds out of the yard for it. Yep. I just want to say how interesting it is to see you guys say this with, with such authority right now. Because I know there was a time when in person we were discussing whether or not it was right to save a Serum Vision or cast it on turn one to get further. And now it's said such confidently, oh yeah, I'm saving that so I can cast it later. Yeah. I mean, we've pl- at this point, we've played that in episode one. You know, I had maybe played 20 matches with Is It Phoenix. At this point, it's probably close to 50 or 60 oh, sure, absolutely. matches after taking it through leagues. But, um, yeah, you get, you do get to kind of figure out these things through practice over time. It's nice to see my friends grow in real time. <laughs> We're trying. I'm very old to learn new tricks, but <laughs> yeah, we learn real slow now, Dave. Yeah. So anyway. That was, I think that was a great kind of insight into the, the mind and the play of the person who actually won the Grand Prix and congrats to, to him. All right. So let's talk about after the, like the aftermath of the, of the Grand Prix. We've talked about a lot of stuff, our concerns about the meta. What, what's the root of, of all of this or what we fear may be the root of all of this at this point? Faithless Looting is a particularly good card. And Faithless Looting is such a consistent enabler for potentially degenerate plans that it may be on a, ban watch list do you guys have, feel like if faithless looting didn't have flashback it would be pretty fine yes it's because of the flashback flashback is very powerful i think it's 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 also faithless looting decks comprised 35 percent of the day two meta oh it, you serious? it turns out yeah if you if you bundle up dredge uh is it phoenix and mono red phoenix it was basically it was 35 percent of the hundred decks that we shared earlier between them you know mm. I love Faithless Looting. I've been a recent convert to playing it in the last couple of years, starting with Mardu Pyromancer. That is a little bit scary. And, you know, Shane, you had some notes about LSB, LSV even talking about Faithless Looting being bannable. Yeah, I mean, he, his direct quote was, I, I think Faithless Looting is a bit much. It peaks its head slightly above acceptable power levels. This is right? after he said that it was the best card in modern, modern, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. This, this was in the top eight, like before the top eight began. He was reacting to the top eight having four faithless looting decks in it. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's fair. I think that the card itself, you know, in a vacuum is just faithless looting, but it, the, the strategies and enables, like Zach mentioned, are so powerful that it could be a bit much. Yeah. You know, and LSV also said something I thought was interesting. He's like, I wouldn't advise playing a reactive deck, right? And he said it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad to have all these proactive decks. They're all fun to play. And fun is an important part of playing a game, right? But with all these decks that just want a goldfish, is that really like a good look? Like you were hinting at before, Stan. What do you guys think about that? Stan, you play a lot of Faithless Looting these days. How do you feel? 
I've been playing Faithless Looting primarily in the mono red deck, which I think is very different from Is It Phoenix because you're not looking as deep and the payoffs are very different. So the most powerful cards in mono red are your one mana prowess creatures. And in my mind, Phoenix is plan B. And a lot of games I play, I'm winning on turn three or four and my opponent's never seeing a bird. And that's one of the things that I think makes blue red interesting is that you're casting all these cantrips and thought scours and ops and serum versions and manamorphos to look at nine cards in a single turn. And because you can't do that in mono red, you're just not seeing as much of the broken nonsense. So to me, faithless looting is fine. But when it's coupled with all these other super cheap spells that are creating seven eights that wipe the board, hooey, you got a stew going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no one would ever have complained about Faithless Looting and Mardu Pyromancer, as we just mentioned. It's a cool engine there, but I'm not, oh, goodness, what is this nonsense? But in, in these shells, it is doing some very powerful, you know, legacy-style things. What's interesting to me is just for Dredge, you know, we saw Dredge's metagame percentage drop fairly substantially, right? Because Dredge is a lot easier to silver bullet hate out, like you said, Zach. But Phoenix is much less easier to silver bullet out. So I think if just Dredge was, Dredge showed up as a two of in the top eight and had three in the top 32, it's like, whatever, NVD. That's what it's going to happen sometimes. But when you have a deck like Phoenix showing up so strongly and so heavily leveraging Faithless Looting, then you start talking about a real problem. Do you think there's a little bit of an echo chamber effect going on there, though? Because if you look at the people actually piloted, is it Phoenix deep? It was some pretty good players. I mean, Owen Turtenwald was in the top 32 on Phoenix. Tom Martell was in the top 32 on Phoenix. Michael Burnett, the winner, as we said, is sort of a, is a guy who's been around for a while, has competed in some pro tours, you know, has, has a bit of a resume himself. So I, I wonder, I do, I can't get over the feeling a little bit that there might be a little bit of like confirmation bias going on here where the good players are starting to say it's the best deck and so the best players are playing it and so it's becoming the best deck because they're choosing to play it and it's just kind of like where does that line kind of get crossed well throwing stan a galaxy brain bone here i mean blue red decks typically do offer a really wide variety of lines of play and rewards very good players and allows them to win games that many other people wouldn't win right so i think it's a deck that good players are going to play and with the power level it offers, um, they're going to win pretty consistently. Yeah. Thank you for giving me that bone. I definitely deserve it. <laughs> Your galaxy bone. I was playing blue-red before it was even good. Back in my day, we were casting Thing in the Ice, and that's it. <laughs> Unironically running Desolate Lighthouse. Yeah, exactly. Stan was running blue-red even before he was good. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on his gravestone. (laughs) (laughs) I know you've been talking about, though, Dave, you've been talking about some spice we've been seeing in the 5.0 lists and seem pretty interested in piloting those. Uh, What did you think about the overall day two and the GP? I mean, I was really bummed this week that I didn't, this weekend that I didn't get to see, you know, Wilderness Reclamation is a deck that a couple of people have wrote in written into us about asking us to do some some more studies in and i was hoping to see if that might have might have some results this weekend not a single feature match or any results out of that deck i was hoping that vanifar make might make a little bit more of a splash in modern and it feels like that's not really happening so it's interesting that it's you know there were a lot of exciting decks for a couple of weeks there and then it's kind of like the meta's returned back to its normal state 
Yeah, it's a little bit disappointing. I figured early on they could have at least shown a few weird rogue strategies, but they were straight into the tier decks. Yeah, I mean, they showed them in rounds four, five, and six, right? They showed mono-white devotion. They showed black, black red prison. They showed taking turns. You know, the decks that they show in those rounds also have to be, you know, 3040 and 50. So, yeah. I mean, did like Rich Hagan show up and like do this or what? Like, it was like the rogue's corner. Yeah, right. It was, they should, they should have been doing that earlier too. Yeah. So I think that one thing that we could take a little bit of a look at is uh, the, uh, the alternate universe that is the modern challenges. We do have a few notes on the the one that went over the weekend. And I think it's a good thing to just look at to contrast the Grand Prix because it's also a large field field event. And a listener of ours actually won that event this weekend. Uh, Wing Tassar is his screen name. His name is Ryan. He was nice enough to write in and kind of give us some insight on what it was like to play that deep into a tournament. You know, these modern challenge tournaments, he told us, are 11 rounds long. So they're almost as long as a GP. You play them in a, yeah, sing- you play them a single day. You know, at least on a, on a GP, you split anything over nine rounds. That goes on to the second day. So does that cut to a top eight after that too? Yeah, it cuts. Oh no, I think it was eleven. It's eleven rounds, including the top eight. So it's eight rounds of Swiss, three rounds of top eight. But um, I'm gonna hand it over to Zach to do the top eight. Yeah. So uh, new friend of the show, Ryan, uh, got first on Gristlebrand. Second was Burn. Uh, no light at the stage, but skewer. Third, we have Affinity with Experimental Frenzy, which we mentioned before is just a very powerful engine in that deck. Can we just call that like Hyper Robots right now? My apologies. And third, we have Hyper Robots. F-Bots. Fourth, no, we- <laughs> they're F-Bots. F-Bots. Okay. Triple apologies. On third, we have F-Bots. Fourth, we have Burn. Fifth, we have Jeskai Ascendancy, which is a deck that I've been seeing more of online and even in my store. Sixth, we have Burn. Seventh, Living End, no Electro Dominance or As Foretold, just a classic Living End list. Uh, in eighth place, we had a Mono Blue Tron. The guy that runs this is a pretty well-known streamer. This is the list I used to run exactly back when I was running Mono Blue Tron. You could have been there. You could have been eighth place on March 2nd's Mono <laughs> Blue Tron. I dedicated 12 or 13 hours to grinding this out on my computer. It could have been me. So let's let's talk about this top eight before we talk about the other spicy things that are in here really quick. This is like from another universe from what we saw at the Grand Prix, right? <laughs> yeah, this is the fringe player's paradise right now. I mean, are they the fringe? Or, you know, a lot of people say that that Magic Online meta is a number of weeks ahead of the paper meta. And so if we look at this, does, does this tell us anything? I mean, how could it be that there were no Is It Phoenix decks in the top eight and the highest placing one was in the ni- was in ninth place? Uh when we had such a pervasiveness of those in paper over the weekend. Well, part of that is the presence of burn. We got three burn decks in the top eight. And as Shane keeps pointing out, that's a favorable matchup against Phoenix, or at least can help put the format in check, potentially. I think you keep him from going crazy. Yeah. I think that's that's relevant. But also, Gristlebrand is a deck, it's like five years old at this point, but it's the shiniest class cannon in modern. It's I think both the least consistent and yet the fastest combo. It can turn two people with the night draw. Oh, it absolutely can. Yeah. Yeah. And it looked like Ryan was also running a good amount of disruption in the sense that he had three chalices in the sideboard. Ooh, wee. That's a little bit spicy. It's not totally unusual for Gristlebrand, especially these days, but a lot of the other lists I'm seeing on Goldfish were typically running two, if any. Yeah, being able to get it on one using Simeon Spirit Guide will sometimes just get you there, especially against decks like Death Shadow or Burn. It can be the game-changing play right there. I, I was surprised I didn't see more cha- more Chalice on screen during the, the Grand Prix. Yeah, I, I was shocked as well, yeah. 
just to piggyback off that specific point, if I had all the money in the world and all the time to do a ton of practicing, if I was going to SCG regionals this weekend, I would just try to play something with four chalice in the main because it just seems like it shuts off half or more of the decks in the format. You're just going for mono white prison that we looked at last week, or mono red prison. Eldrazi, Eldrazi, like all the way. The- four mindstone, four chalice. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> I want to point out a couple other decks that stood out to me in the modern challenge. The eleventh place Mardu deck running a single main deck Kaya Orzov Usurper. I don't remember who it was on Twitter, but someone pointed out that Kaya right now is just great against all of the big decks in at least the top eight of the GP. Yeah, that was Hall of Famer Willie Adel from Brazil, a great guy who also loves his mid-range. Yeah, otherwise, a, a lot of this deck seemed pretty stock, except it also had Riz, Rick's Mati Reveler. Yeah. So I think that's Mardu Pyro too. is a deck getting outmoded, but people are still testing with it, maybe seeing some positive results with newer innovations another deck that stood out to me was the 24th place deck by someone by the name of terra destroyer doing mono green ramp land destruction control things main deck vivian reads trinospheres it was also splashing blue for hydroid crassus is this standard that's a powerful card i think though like that card oh, yeah. definitely has a chance to be good. Yeah, anything that's a cast trigger and not an end of battlefield trigger is a good card. Yeah, I can't believe they brought cast triggers back. To be honest with you, I mean, after the Eldrazi stuff, it's broken enough to play it in Tron, but let alone having it in Standard again, it seems silly. I think the fastest this deck can get Trinisphere out is probably Turn Two with an Arbor Elf and a Utopia Sprawl or something. But Trinisphere is another card that seems pretty okay right now with the meta, making all of the cheap cantrips cost three seems not bad dave to get back to your question before is this ahead of the curve or is this just a alternate universe curve in terms of the magic is this timeline metagame b313 or is this our timeline (laughs) man i don't know i think well it remains to be seen i don't think burn is a deck people leave at home at a gp do you know what i mean but it could have just been that the 52 to 48 percent coin flips just went the wrong way or something like that across the board or people were taking the arc light burn rather than the traditional burn out and they didn't have the same powerful matchup against the phoenix decks i don't know yeah absolutely i mean phoenix is a very fast deck and there are times in burn where you need to rip a lightning bolt from the top and you rip a land instead and it's game two yeah i mean i think that that you know i i like the deck choice that winged hussar the winner of this this challenge made i mean i think that this is a meta where you can be rewarded for going super fast and if you know all the complex interactions that are in Grishel Brands, like it seems like it could be a good time to get it out, you know, because it's faster than Burn, even. So it seems like a good place to start. I also think that's a little bit of why we're starting to see Living End pop up here and there in a couple of places. Now, there wasn't any that made the day two, but there was a lot of it on camera, I noticed. And one of the things that's interesting about Living End is that it lets you instant speed Wrath and get rid of all the creatures that Is it Phoenix could have in the way or Dredge could have in the way and have your own guys replace them on the board and kind of just get in there. So something to think about as far as these kind of really combo-y, combo-y creature decks as being viable options here and there. That wraps up our very long breakdown. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going deep on surgical extraction. Stay with us.
so even though I didn't get to watch a ton of the coverage from the GP, as I read recaps afterwards and looked at what people were saying on Reddit, one thing was abundantly clear. Surgical extraction was everywhere, including a bunch of Phoenix main decks, if not all of the Phoenix main decks. I feel like there was surgical in Elves list. I think I found a copy of surgical extraction in an old shoe I haven't worn in years. What is the <laughs> deal with this card? Why is it popping up? And what makes it so much better now than it was, say, six to ten months ago? Well, I think that what's going on is that people are trying to find ways to deal with with is it Phoenix and Dredge specifically. We all recognize that they're at the top of the format. Everybody feels that, and they're just looking for ways to make it work in the sideboard and in the case of decks that can get away with it in the main deck, because there are so many decks in the meta, not just those two, that you can really kind of affect by taking out one of their key pieces. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think about why Surgical's popping up? I think the fact that it costs Phyrexian mana is something to very much heavily consider right now. Free spells are always very good. As we've seen, they've banned Gataxian Probe, and Gutshot is something that pops up as well. So hate cards that you can play in any deck are very good. And as you mentioned, they uh, target two of the very big decks right now. So hate that is free to cast that hits big decks is a no-brainer. Can I? Uh, let's talk about just how many play in any deck was going on this weekend, just to transition off of that. So Stan was alluding to this, but some of the lists that I saw Surgical Extraction in from GPLA this weekend, Tron, there were Tron lists running Surgical in the sideboard. Elves was running Surgical in the sideboard. Is it Phoenix? And the Red Phoenix, of course, were both running it in the sideboard, and some of them were running it in the main deck. Blue-White Control was running it in, in the sideboard in at least one matchup that I saw, which is, has happened before. So I think that other evidence, if you look at the the top four and the top 32, Surgical was in four of the top eight decks and 16 of the top 32 decks from LA this weekend, which means that you can expect to play against it in about 50% of the games that you see at big tournaments. If like two years ago, you had told me that like this $2 bulk rare I had opened up in Modern Masters 2 was going to be in 50% of the top 32 decks and be worth $50, I would have told you you were an absolutely insane person. Yeah, and that's another piece of evidence to show us how much people want to play it right now because it has gone up to being $50 to $60 in paper and on Moto. It's a $50, a 50 to 60 ticket card on Moto, which is just bonkers if you really look at how much cards cost on Moto. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. What, four months ago in our group chat, we had a, a running joke about how bad Surgical was and that we weren't supposed to talk about it because it wasn't playable. And th th there were some jokes and laughs about it, but it was generally held to be more of a fringe card and not the answer to the format, right? So there's, there's kind of like two viewpoints here, right? Zach talked a little bit earlier about how it's a free card to play, a free hate card that anybody can play. And I think that part of what we want to talk about today is the qualifications, the many asterisks that go on that kind of free designation. I'm going to let Shane talk a little bit here about, about his general feelings about surgical extraction because he's been someone who's been very anti it for a long time. But, um, hold on. I just want to point out Shane's not anti surgical. He's just a surgical truther. He only wants it where <laughs> it's good and doesn't believe in sticking it in everywhere. It's free with an asterisk and a cross and a star and a, it's free with several qualifiers on it. Yep. And so we're going to take people through those qualifiers today. But Shane, how, what do you think is going on that makes it okay for people to, that, for people to want to run this narrow card right now? I don't think it's okay. I don't think it's okay. I think it's, I think it's results oriented thinking right now. 
In fact, the GP winner, Burnett, he ran a single main deck surgical, and he said it was worse than Gutshot would have been almost the entire day. He boarded it out almost every match. So I think main deck surgical is still pretty sketchy, even with a metagame of 30% dredge and phoenix in this particular metagame. You know, that's just a, that's a side question, right? Does this actually belong in the main deck? And the answer is probably not. But it's so powerful in the sideboard against some of the most representative strategies right now. I think it's just a, uh, it's a fact of life that if you're not running surgical, you're going to give up some equity against some of these really powerful decks right now that unless you're getting rid of those potent threats or the linchpins of things that you may, you're going to lose 5% or something like that. Yeah. But I do want to, want to point out one thing right there, which is even now, I think that people need to be very aware that there are lots of situations and decks that you cannot run surgical extraction in. And that's what we're going to talk about right now so that people understand what makes it good, what makes it bad, the way you use it. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the problems and the opportunities that come along with surgical extraction. Proportunities is my new favorite word. We use that in uh, in business a lot when you ask someone to do something they don't want to do. You go, this is, uh, I know this is, it's not really a problem, but it, it's, think of it more as a opportunity for us to uh, to do some solving together. All those meetings in the in the boardroom you're in, Dave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm secretly chatting with you guys in Slack while I'm in these boardrooms. <laughs> So before we dive into the to breaking down the rules around surgical extraction, let's talk about what the actual text of the card is. So surgical extraction is a one black Phyrexian mana instant that says, choose target card in a graveyard other than a basic land card. Search its owner's graveyard, hand, and library for any number of cards with the same name as that card and exile them. Then that player shuffles his or her library. So there's a lot there, right? It's got that extraction effect. It only gets to target something in the graveyard, and you can play it for free at instant speed by paying two life. And any and anyone can play that because it doesn't require any colored mana. Right. So in my mind, I see that there's three problems with surgical that people overlook or at least don't stop and figure out if they really are a good home for it by by going through these kind of issues. So I think we can use these as useful tests for deciding if you should play them or not. The first problem I see with surgical extraction is what I call the targeting problem. And that relates to the fact that the first sentence on this card says, choose target card in a graveyard other than a basic land card. So targeting a card in your opponent's graveyard doesn't seem like a big deal, but it can be really hard sometimes. Because you have to get that thing into the graveyard, right? Right. Many of the permanents that you want to to use or can be impacted the most by surgical extraction's power are resilient and don't go in the graveyard, or you need to find ways to get that card that you want to surgically extract into the graveyard in the first place. So that means that you often have to support surgical with other cards in, in the case in order to make it effective, both from your deck and also in the deck that you're trying to play it against. Yeah, like my sort of old rule that people don't seem to be following anymore, and they're winning, so it's probably a wrong rule at this point, is that you want to pair it with things like hand disruption, like a Thawseize or an Inquisition of Kozilek, because then you get something in the graveyard that you can then surgical. So you pick their Primeval Titan, you know, topical for us, and then you surgical a lot of existence, and you put a huge crimp in the game plan of your opponent there. Yeah. 
and I think that's a really traditional thing to think about it with. There's other things too, right? If you are playing against Tron or playing against a Valakit deck, you need to make sure that you have land destruction in your deck so that you can get one of those problematic lands into the graveyard and then you can surgical it and try to get all of those out so that you kind of nerf your opponent's deck that way as well. So you could play Field of Ruin or you could play Assassin's Trophy. You could play Ghost Quarter. Ghost Quarter. You could play Zach's favorite Molten Rain if you are in some kind of very <laughs> weird alternate dimension deck. <laughs> no, there was a discussion once upon a time whether or not it was uh, good for Ponza to help try to remove lands in Tron, but I think the consensus was that maybe uh, Rain of Salt or other lands like or their land destruction like that might be a better call. Oh, that's interesting. So that that's a big problem, right? There, there's one bar to clear in order to make sure that you actually have targets to play against this. So, so what's going on right now that's making people feel like they don't have to deal with the targeting problem? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, a lot of these decks are that it's good against are dumping cards that are worth targeting into the yard themselves, whether it be Phoenix or cards like from Dredge, like uh, Bloodgast or Norkamiva. Exactly. And so that's the thing that I think is making it kind of like bleed into people's sideboards where they think it's good against lots and lots of decks out of their deck, but it's really only good against Dredge and Phoenix because they're doing the work for you of putting cards to the graveyard. The other decks that you might bring this in still are not doing that work for you. So that's kind of the first problem with that. Does that, does that make sense to everybody? Anybody have any closing thoughts? In terms of the targeting problem, how else do you think one could ostensibly try to get around it besides hand disruption and the deck doing it for you? Uh, removal is still, whether that's land removal. I mean, if you want a surgical creatures for some reason in the matchup, you need to have creature removal so you can take one that's out of, uh, been played and put it in the graveyard and then surgical it. I mean, the last one that I think kind of makes sense is counter magic. So that's why I think occasionally you see you, uh, blue white control play it is because they can counter problematic spells and then surgical them. And that actually opens up surgical to a lot more uses because blue white can, can counter more types of spells than some, some other decks can remove through, uh, targeted removal. Uh, yeah, I think snapcasting a surgical is also a very powerful play that shouldn't be discounted. Yeah. So that's sort of like the fun part of surgical in those decks, which you often don't kind of see coming on when it, when it does happen. I mean, for example, in the GP over the weekend, there was a blue white versus dredge matchup that I watched where I think that they cat, the blue white player cast surgical two or three times where they got rid of Narcomibo, they got rid of blood gas, they got rid, I think they got rid of prize amalgam too. It was yes. like, it was. It was pretty wild. Yeah, that'll, that'll do work. At one point, the Dredge player was counting out how big of a conflagrate they would need to kill the control player, and just wasn't worth it. They had to go to game three. So if you're going to run it, the first test that you need to pass is, am I going to be able to target cards in the graveyard with surgical extraction or not? Do I have a plan to do that in this matchup? The second problem with using surgical extraction is what I call the card advantage problem, which is... We hinted at this above, but if you get the card you want out of someone's graveyard, you have to remember that you haven't always actively done something with the rest of the cards that they have available to use in their uh, in their hands at that point in time or in play, right? So effectively, what you're doing quite often is if you just read the way that that surgical extraction works, it is card disadvantage for sure. Now, what I mean by that is you are using a card to get zero cards in return. There's a whole bunch of stuff on top of this to kind of assuage that, but you have to make sure that when you play surgical in a matchup, you are getting enough value out of using it that you don't fall so far behind from, from one for owing yourself. Yeah. So what you're saying, Dave, is you're using a card in your hand to remove a card from their graveyard and their deck. 
but not from their hand typically, unless you get lucky. Unless you get lucky. And sometimes, you know, in a deck where you're running hand disruption, you have a better chance of knowing that, of course. And other times you just get lucky and you manage to grab the uh, backup copy that they had of something in their hand. And that feels really good because you're removing power from their deck, but you're also putting them down a card the same way that you went down a card. Mm-hmm. Do you guys feel like that problem, the card advantage problem specifically, is becoming less of an issue because of the power level of the cards coming in and out of the graveyard? So for instance, if your opponent has no phoenixes in hand, but they're about to bring two phoenixes out of the yard, it still seems like a perfectly cromulent play. You know, what? what's the difference between their hand and graveyard at that point? Yeah, I think what you're getting at, Stan, is important. I think right now, especially, like the concept of what is a hand is getting more fuzzy in modern. And we talked about this last week in our dredge discussion. And so, more or less, the dredge player's graveyard is an extension of their hand. For an, an Izzet Phoenix player, a Phoenix in the graveyard is as good as a Phoenix in their hand. Better even. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, if you, if you, if the card read, you cast three spells, put this under the battlefield, tapped and attacking for free, it would be more or less the same thing, right? So the concept of whether or not surgicaling something out of the graveyard that is equally as important as something in their hand becomes a lot more of a gray area instead of a black and white area. Yeah, I agree. And I think, that, again, that's part of the reason this card is showing up more often is because there are so many decks that are doing that. Now, the problem is if you're someone who picks up a deck that has surgical extraction in the sideboard and you try to bring it in against decks that don't do that because you think, oh, I'm going to steal somebody, I'm going to surgical amulet titans amulets, you can get in a position where you fall behind because you grabbed an amulet out of the graveyard. They don't have any other amulets in their hand and you're just kind of running out of resources yourself while they're still building up to being able to cast a prime time and just kind of smack you with it even without amulet. So the problem here is much more about understanding the matchups where you can be reckless with your card advantage and the ones where you have to be more conservative and hold on to resources. Yeah, I think there are some parallels you can draw with Blood Moon a few ways there. And I think it's similar to where if you don't get a Blood Moon down early, is it really worth casting getting out of your hand if they have the basics they need and you're kind of just taking your turn to do nothing or maybe you should be playing something else? Similar to where Surgical at a certain point maybe isn't your game plan anymore if they are have their cards out already or they don't have them in their hand. Yeah. I also think it can be a little bit like the thing that we've talked about with Blood Moon, where if you play disruption against someone and don't follow it up with a threat of your own, you're just buying a little bit of time and you're not really getting anything out of it. So in certain matchups, when you surgical against things that aren't super broken, you can end up, again, falling behind just because you don't have a threat of your own. So I think in the case of Phoenix, Stan, and probably Dredge, it is much more like, hey, you just got to get those cards out of there because they're so powerful in the graveyard, they're so powerful in the hand, it really doesn't matter. But there's lots of other matchups where it does matter. Another way to kind of address the card advantage problem is in decks where you get value out of just playing a spell or just losing life from the from the Phyrexian mana. So you can buy yourself a little bit of utility out of running Surgical a bit more recklessly in things like Mono Red Phoenix, where you can get prowess triggers off of it for just value if you want to put together a big uh, mm-hmm. opening attack, mm-hmm. and that's just kind of what you have available to pump up your Monastery Mentors and your and your Soulscar Mages. Not Monastery, Monastery Swiss Spears. I and Sorry, I know, right? That's a very legacy play. 
And then the other thing that you can do is also, you know, in the case of Grix's Death Shadow, for example, you know, you can be a bit more reckless with surgical if you're trying to get yourself down to where you're just going to get your life total to where you can cast a uh, Death Shadow and actually, you know, make it bigger overall. Mm -hmm. So just to tie, tie a bow on this part of the discussion, make sure that you have a plan for accounting for the card disadvantage that you may face when you play surgical in certain matchups. The final problem that I kind of term the effectiveness problem, which is essentially, if surgical is a card that's all upside, why wouldn't people just throw it in their deck all the time for value? Yeah, this is like the biggest problem, right? Right. I, I think so. And it's also the one that is kind of the hardest to get your, your kind of arms around because people feel like they can just grab stuff from someone's graveyard and disrupt their plans. Like you would see people a couple of months ago be like against Grixis death shadow, be like, I'm going to surgical their snapcaster mages. And you're like, yeah, why I've had people surgical like a, like a Tarmogoyf when I was still running like a black green strategy. Yeah. And it's like, why is that card even in your deck against me right now? And so I think that what we should think about here are the types of decks where it's good and the types of decks where it's bad. So the reason that I think surgical is powerful right now is that it's it's really good against these linear aggro decks that rely on a specific suite of enablers or use the graveyard, kind of like Shane said in the in the previous rule, as their hand, right? So that has bumped it up a whole bunch. But the problem is it's bad against a different class of decks that kind of follow a couple of criteria in my mind. One is decks that are really redundant, right? Decks that have a lot of interchangeable cards or threats, you really don't want to have surgical against that because what are you getting rid of from them that uh, would really nerf their game plan that much no, like i don't think anybody would ever play surgical against burn or elves but those are the type of things where you might see someone who's unsure about what to do with their sideboard do at the, the very first time that they have an option well i'm just going to take whatever burn spell they put into their into their graveyard first and hope that i get one out of their hand if i remove this azuri and surgical it that seems like a powerful play right the problem is they have other spells that pay off having lots of tokens, Elvish Archdruid, other lords, things like that, that just, you know, it might have the same broken potential, but you just spent resources to get rid of a card that was their plan A when they have multiple other ways to, to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Another class of decks that I think it's really bad against is basically control or mid-range. Like any fair deck, I think, is not going to be going to, Surgical is not really good against. Hey, you Snapcaster players, how many times have you had someone bring in a surgical against your Snapcaster deck thinking they're going to get you? I've definitely had it happen. And they either target the target that I have with Snapcaster. So I play Snapcaster and I say targeting Lightning Bolt. And they go, I'm going to surgical your Lightning Bolt. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I guess that's fine. You're probably going to wish you had had a Scavenging Ooze to do that instead, just because there's a lot more utility out of Scavenging Ooze in that situation. But um, I don't think it's a very good play. I mean, you still got your 2-1 flash. Yep. So the value generated there is not worth a card. Yeah. And sometimes it's like they take two damage to do that when I was just going to bolt them with the Snapcaster Mage, you know, <laughs> lightning bolt anyway. So it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I think another thing that factors in here is that with control and midrange, you have a little more room to put one or two ofs in and have your own spin on a deck. So there's a lot less known information going in. So I, I had an experience where I was playing against a Jun player, and I, it, when I was playing Scred, and I had a Hazret land, and they had a hell of a time dealing with it, eventually got a Dismember off and got it, and then they extracted it. And I only run one Hazret, so it was, yeah, okay, like, that's that's fine with me, like, n nothing happened, look at my deck, see my cards, it's at my turn now. Yeah, and they two-for-one themselves, and pro exactly. maybe took six life to do it, and you're like, that's great, I love it. 
Right. So uh, a surgical really shines when you're going into a known meta or a meta with a lot of known redundancy, but against control and mid-range or people can be running special one-ofs or their u- unique flair on things, it can really flail when you target a card that's just a one-of pet card. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in contrast to this, the kind of group of decks that it's good against are pretty specific, I think. We've talked about the first group in my mind already, which is decks that go crazy using the graveyard and have important pieces that can be nabbed. And that's 100%. That's Dredge and Phoenix, right? So if you know that you're playing against a deck that needs to put pieces in the yard in order to make it work, Surgical seems like a good fit for that. I mean, we were just talking about about Grizzle Brand a little bit ago, right? And that deck relies on, quite often relies on Gorio's Vengeance, which is also a... a means got to get cards in the graveyard, got to target it with a spell and bring it back, and that's how I cheat it. So against Phoenix, are you just always tagging the Arclight Phoenix? I think in general that's your best target. If you're against the Blue-Red Phoenix, they might thought scour a thing in the ice into the bin, and then you might get some good value out of surgicaling that. But having been on the receiving end of a surgical, I can say that surgical in response to one or two or more Phoenix triggers can be truly backbreaking. So I think if you're bringing surgical in against a bird deck, generally that's because you want to target the birds. Yeah. Occasionally you might target Faithless Looting. I think if you feel like they're really constrained on resources and they're counting on that to kind of churn through stuff. So if you get a chance to get them after the first one, that might help too. I think it's really showcased here is that there are multiple good targets in the deck and that's why it's worth bringing it in. So why don't we talk about Dredge for a second? Now we talked about this a little bit last week, but let's give the highlights about the cards that you should try to try to get out of Dredge with Surgical when you can. I'm just going to repeat myself from last week. I think it really depends on where you are in the game. And how fast you're going to able to be put to put your strategy down onto the battlefield. So again, the exact same example. Let's say someone playing dredge casts a faithless looting. They pitch a single dredger and uh, just a, a nothing card. Right? You're going to know that they're going to have any dredgers left in their deck, and so that's their dredge engine they're hoping to get online. If you surgical that out, you might be able to stop them and their dredge engine from getting online long enough for you to enact your own strategy. But then later in the game. If they have some prized amalgams that are going to come back off some blood gas triggers or some narcomoeba triggers, you can make the choice of responding to a narcomoeba trigger and getting all the narcomoebas out of their deck. You can respond to a blood gas trigger, get all the blood gas out of their deck, which is, I will tell you, better than a narcomoeba. Or you can just get the amalgams out. Like, let's say you have plenty of ways to deal with some low toughness creatures like narcomoebas and blood ghasts, but you don't really have a great way to deal with three toughness creatures like prized amalgams. You're going to want to get those out of the deck. Um, or maybe super late game when you need to avoid that uh, conflagrate from being flashed back, then you're going to tag that out of the graveyard and avoid the super big burn spell late in the game when you have the battlefield under control. So a lot of options there, which means yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good against that. Any other decks that kind of fit into this zone of decks that fill the graveyard that you think people might run into a lot? Storm is a deck that comes to mind immediately. So that's great. That's the next kind of bucket I think uh, that we could consider here, which is decks that I would kind of term as being pure combo decks, right? So Storm, Ad Nauseum, Grizzle Brand, maybe there's there's a target in there that you could go for. So it's a deck that relies on one to two cards to win the win the game, right? 
And I think there's a lot of question about which cards you could target here. You know, Stan, you used to play Storm. What what do you feel like would be the best card to target out of Storm with a Surgical Extraction? Yeah, I've lost to Surgical Extractions when I was a Storm player. Past in Flames is really good. It's one of the most important cards to maintain that Storm count going and drive the engine of your deck. Gifts Given could be a reasonable target because it's another really important part of the engine to keep the combo going. And also, if you're, let's say you're playing mid-range and doing just the classic Thoughtsy Surgical, taking out their storm payoffs, such as Empty the Warrens or more ideally Grape Shot, more or less shuts them off from winning the game entirely. So you won't get a shot at those if you don't have Hand Disruption, basically, right? Because people almost never play Grape Shot for value. It happens occasionally. I don't think that's necessarily true, and that speaks to the power of Pass and Flames. Like, sometimes you'll Grape Shot, Pass and Flames, Grape Shot. Hmm. Yeah, or there are times when someone might give you a gifts pile with grape shot in it, and you put it in the yard, and then you can act your magic then. That's a really good point, is that this this does rely on putting cards in the graveyard a lot because it gifts ungiven. Yeah, you can also surgical in response to a noxious revival, which is another card that sometimes Storm players are doing as a one-of just to keep the combo going. For sure. The very idea of that has got me excited right now. <laughs> So, you know, combo, you know, those are great examples from Storm. There's other combo decks out there that are like that. There's Ad Nauseam. There's probably other ones. <laughs> Living End. Living End. Ad Nauseam is a little trickier because they're not really putting as many cards into their graveyard. I mean, th- they're putting cantrips into their yard, but I don't think Ad Nauseam is putting their most important pieces in there. No, Ad Nauseam is a deck where you need that untargeted removal, the naming card removal in form of Cranial Extraction, Unmoored, Ego, etc., yeah, because you can just call them without them being in the graveyard. Exactly. But, but they're not yeah. free. No, they're, they are most certainly not. Some are four mana. Yeah. And like land-based decks like Valakut or like you mentioned, like primetime decks, you have to have some way to get those into the graveyard for you to extract them. But then when you do, that's big value. Yeah. Simple. Your opponent keeps seven, no lands, discards to hand size. Boom. Yeah. Heavens. Perfect. So what do you guys think about Grixis Death Shadow as being a potential deck on the receiving end of Surgicals? Because on the one hand, they often have the Miser's Faithless Looting, but they are running Thought Scours and putting cards in their yard constantly. So do you bring in Surgical and hope that they put a fish or a Death Shadow in the yard off of Thought Scour and you get them? I personally do not. I don't think the value is there because they're not relying on a single threat you know they're not relying on their only their copies of death shadow they're not relying only on their copies of grim angler they have some other threats to back those up not many though there's not many other ones there might be one tassiger or otherwise like let's say in theory you surgical snap surgical in dream world and you get a fish and a death shadow they're only out as probably snap beats Sure, but how how are those cards really getting into the graveyard? Is it is it Thought Scour? Because what we talked about is Thought Scour most of the time is a positive for you. So it's most of the time getting lands or cards you want there. So if it's really hitting those back-to-back creatures, that was a really bad Thought Scour and you got the luck, but that it's such a small amount of the time. So if you're hoping your opponent's really good card advantage is whiffing, that's not somewhere you want to be in your sideboard plan. Yeah, this seems like best-case scenario thinking. That's how I feel about it, is that your plan against a deck like that should be a different axis. Molten Rain, perhaps. Blood Moon, perhaps. Oh, sure. Right. <laughs> I don't side that card in its main decks, so I forget. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you forget most people play it the other way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I the last couple of decks I think I want to ask about are, of, of the top like meta decks we've talked about, we've given some good targets for Dredge, for Is It Phoenix, 
for Titan. Tron is generally people trying to to get a hold of of Urza's tower, which is really tricky. And I think you can only really try that if you're playing like uh, Rock, basically, where you have a whole lot of cards that can target lands. It's funny, Dave, when you were talking about Tron running Surgical, typically Tron runs it as potential value against some of these top decks like you mentioned, but it's also a protection spell. So if someone tries to surgical a land in your graveyard, then you can protect it yourself yeah. by surgically surgicaling your own land, and then you just fail to find the other ones in your deck. Yeah, that's part. I think that's something that people kind of forget about. Why is is it Phoenix is running the card too? Is this for the same reason? Is to try to keep other people's surgicals from taking all of their birds. Mm-hmm. So they just lose one, and that's kind of it. I just had a massive light bulb go off as one more reason to bring in surgical against Death Shadow. Let's say you're putting Phoenix in the bin by yourself, or maybe they think they're being cute and doing Phoenix into the yard because of Thoughtseize. Theory, that's just one way to protect them against one of their most important outs for your birds. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's true. You have to be, I would want to be pretty sure that the deck I'm playing against is running it, is running Surgical before maybe, I did maybe, that. Maybe game three. Yeah, because for, so it's not typical for, for Grixis to, always run it right now i think it's still in the player choice sort of area so i would be careful about it in that sense and maybe i would want to see it before i did that but you know it's something to think about i do want to point out a few decks that i don't think i would sideboard it in against if i could avoid it just so people can see other decks from the top of the meta that i don't think there is a good reason to so let's say you're playing against banned spirits do you think if you were if you were a deck that was playing this you would try to side in surgical against banned spirits no, it's a redundant deck. It has a bunch of threats that work together, but they are so there's so many different creatures in there that there's not much to worry about. Does Collected Company or Aether Vial incent you enough to bring it in against them? How do you get Aether Vial into the yard? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If I can blow How- it up. I'm doing good enough already. If they have a second one, so be it. Exactly. And it's the same thing with Coco a little bit, where it's like, if they cast it once and I manage to get it, maybe occasionally I get the second one out of their hand. And that's what the real big game is, is trying to keep Collected Company out of their hand. You're already at such a loss of value if they cast Collected Company anyway, especially as, say, as a mid-range deck, yeah. that you, you can't you can't handle that card disadvantage. Yeah. So similar vein, humans, right? There's no reason to bring it in against that because there's, it's such a web of interconnected synergistic cards that are, that just make big creatures and attack that if you spend some time trying to surgical, spend some time and cards trying to surgical one of their threats out of the graveyard, it, you're really going to be sad at the end of the day when you do that. Yeah. And I feel like a, a sort of common fallacy to fall into with this is that we talked about like, Oh, I'm going to kill their hate card and surgical it. If you already killed their hate card once, you're in a good place. If they drew a second copy of their hate card, so it goes, that's life. But if you killed it once, you're on a good track. Don't trick yourself in thinking you're going to get rid of it. Yeah. Harden scales and affinity. Harden scales is a little iffier. I can see a world where the mid-range player is using either Thoughtseize or even Inquisition to put Ballista or Hanger back into the yard and, sur- and surgicaling that out. It's kind of best case scenario, but those are the two most important creatures in Harden scales. Not Arcbound Ravager? Yeah, Arcbound Ravager is, I think, the most yeah, important. Yeah, that's what came to mind. I would love to surgical Arcbound Ravager. That sounds amazing right now. I just think it's, though, there's there's a lot of redundant pieces in Hardened Scales, and I think that you, you can't rely, I don't think one can rely on using a surgical to try to pick off 
one of these three sort of payoff cards. No, I, I agree, but I think something we saw at the tournament over the weekend is that this is a deck that can easily get back in there after a board wipe. So yeah. I think that, and I found myself in a similar place where I've been able to wipe their board and then they come back. So you wipe and then get rid of a, a big piece of their deck that's going to help them get back in. So they still have other good cards, but a card like Ravenger is really something that totally changes the game for them. So be able to make sure they don't see it again can help you then get there. Yeah, I just got, I just think if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that you're going to get a card that's also in their hand. Yes, 100%. So that, and that's a whole other zone of problems, like we said. So you have to be playing it in the right deck with the right enablers to have that strategy work. I think the conclusion in terms of the power of surgical and hardened scale specifically is that you might find some usefulness if you're one of those people who's main decking surgical extraction, but we would probably side it out if it was a main deck card for us or just never side it in. I think that's true. The only time I would consider is if it was a deck with that I was playing that had Thoughtseize and Inquisition in it, basically, where I know what's in their hand. And even then, I don't know if I would do it. I think that, to sum it up, if you're going to do surgery... You have to answer these three questions. The first one is, how will I get the card I want into the graveyard where I can target it? Two, how will I make up for the card advantage I lose inherently by playing surgical? Or am I sure that I'm not losing card advantage by playing surgical in this matchup? And three, how do I make sure I effectively choose the right decks to target with surgical extraction and leave it out against the decks that it does nothing against? Yeah, this all makes sense to me. I concur. Do I get a doctorate? Am I Dr. Surgical now? <laughs> do you have a white lab coat? I do. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll need photo evidence, and then the check will be in the mail, so to speak. Have, have you scrubbed up? Do you accept Cigna? <laughs> All right, Dave, thank you so much for leading that conversation on surgical extraction. I still don't like it. I'm probably not going to take him out of my sideboard, but that's just because I'm playing Phoenix decks in a room full of birds. And I oh wait, I mean the consensus is that you shouldn't take it out, right? right? As long as you know how to use it. Exactly. Yeah, we should say it's definitely you should keep playing it. It's a powerful card, but you just have to know when to use it. Shane still hates it. I don't hate it. I just think that it's one of those cards that people are going to play more often than I want to see it. But then again. People are also winning with it. So who knows? I think that there's a balance between being results oriented and also just allowing for the realities of the metagame we find ourselves in and how the decks are trying to operate. It's a card with a lot of peaks and valleys, right? The highs are high and the lows are pretty low. You can either blow someone out or lose a bunch of tempo and there goes the game. And I think it's important, like, they, like the whole point of this conversation is for people to use it correctly, right? And to understand better how to use it. And that's the goal of this conversation. And Dave did a great job. Great job, Dave. Beep, beep. All right, let's take a quick break. That was super fun. But when we return, we're going to head into the best part of the show. Everyone's favorite part. Definitely mine. I look forward to it every week. It's the wind down. Stay with us. Stan, you have uh, the regionals coming up. Yeah, man. Yeah, doggy. Super pumped. I wish I was going. The, the closest one to me is like in Dallas. It's such a bummer being not in the Midwest and East Coast now for SEGs. I wish I was going, but I have to stay home and watch Paw Patrol. We're on a roll. Yeah, that's right, Shane. They are on a roll. I'm legally mandated to stay home and watch Paw Patrol. <laughs> Paw Patrol. <laughs> 
I'm super excited because this SCG Regionals is the two-year anniversary since the first time I did a competitive REL event, which was also SCG Regionals, basically in March in Rosemont, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. And I've certainly come a very long way since then as a modern player. So this seems like a nice opportunity for me to kind of test the chops that I've learned over the years. Because that first SCG event, I went 2-7 playing Storm, and it sucked. I'm glad you you stuck it out and played nine rounds. That's madness. That is incredible. 2-7. The truth is, it was so taxing and uh, like kind of crappy that I pretty much took a month off of competitive magic after that and just played super casually with my friends before eventually the bug bit me again. So Stan, you know, you've, you've said you've come a long way, uh, between in the last couple of years. What kind of, um, do you think preparation has gone into that? Do you think it's practice? Like, what are you doing to, to kind of get ready for this, for this tournament? Cause I know that you are planning on playing the same deck you've been playing the last six weeks or so, which is Mono Red Phoenix. So you kind of have your deck chosen. Where are you going from there? Yeah. So preparing for the tournament has changed a lot over the years and doing more of these comp REL events has really shaped my thinking on what it takes to be successful and have fun and the intersection between those two. I think the most important part of tournament preparation is deck selection. Tweaking your 75. Yeah, that's what we like to call it. (laughs) But that can go either between looking at your collection and finding, you know, what you have that'll attack the meta the best. But also you have to always keep in mind that if you're playing nine rounds, you should probably enjoy and understand the cards you're casting. So in general, I don't recommend people pick a 75 just because they think it's really good if they've never cast the cards before. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't make it this weekend. But if I were to go, I think the deck that I would like to bring or would be the best deck would be Mono Red Prison. But I would not bring that deck there because I'm new to it and I would bring Scred instead. I think that Scred is worse positioned than Mono Red Prison, but I know it better and would make less misplays. Yeah, I have to agree. You know, I went to a regional probably three years ago and I was going to take Splinter Twin. I think it was right before Splinter Twin got banned. And at the last minute I switched over to a Jeskai prowess deck like a jeskai monastery mentor plus pyromancer yes keep deck talking where i was just like i'm i'm just brewing this deck and it was like taxi and probe and lightning bolt and like all this stuff i was just like i'm doing it and i went and i just had a terrible time because i played a deck that i had never tried to play before yeah so stan how are you picking your deck then like how how do you go about making your deck selection Yeah, I mean, for me specifically, it's really a conversation with myself and friends about do I want to play Is It Phoenix, which is arguably the best deck in the format and one I have access to and even have a little experience playing, or do I... Yeah, you've played it. Yeah, I've played it. And I had, you know, some moderate LGS success with it. But the other side is Mono Red Phoenix, which I've been playing a lot more often more recently, doing a lot of reps with it online and in the store getting a sense of its matchups across different decks. So the questions, the three questions I really try to ask myself are, what is the deck that I understand the best among those that I can play? What do I think is going to attack the meta most reasonably, as opposed to something that's just very poorly positioned right now? And also what's going to be fun for me, because I don't want to play a deck like Titan Shift, even though I understand it and had practice with it. That's just not the type of deck I really enjoy playing. And I know I'm going to give up some amount of win equity if I'm bored or not excited about the cards I'm casting. Never playing control again. 
Well, I still like playing control. I just don't think it's very well positioned. It, but still, tough to take to something that you are anticipating playing eight or nine rounds, right? Oh, that's for sure. Especially if you're playing a deck that goes to time so often, having to commit an hour to every game or every round is going to catch up with you. You need to really love it. I've lost count the number of times that I've like audible to burn last minute, like in, in past tournaments, just because it's something that I know well enough. It's got decent mashups across the board and it's something that I'm not going to have to think too ridiculously hard about. And I'm going to get some breaks between rounds, right? Now I'm to the point where, you know, that might be something like Tron or it's something that I own. I know well enough. I think it has good enough matchups across the board. And maybe now it might be Dredge because I feel like, like what you're saying, Stan, is that you have enough reps against the current metagame. You're, it's fresh in your mind. You have the understanding of what you're going to do against the decks you're probably going to see. And that's a really, I think, powerful place to be both having a pr- proactive strategy. I think is important for me at least. And then being able to not be too mentally taxing across a nine round day. So the next two parts that are involved in my tournament preparation tend to work in tandem with one another. And that's some combination of practice and preparing a sideboard. Practice is important because you start to understand your role in different matchups. You start to understand how mulliganing affects your plan and strategy. You can even use, if you have ample time to practice, testing very specific scenarios and asking yourself very specific questions about what do I do in this situation? Do I try line A or line B, the more intuitive line or the line that might give me a bigger payoff in the end? So if you have the time to maximize practice ahead of a large tournament, being able to challenge yourself and test hypotheses is really a great way to understand what you're going to do when the tournament comes around, but also might inform the cards that you're putting into your 75, especially your sideboard. What, one thing I've noticed, guys, and I wanted to ask you about is, like Stan was saying, your your mulliganing decisions. I have been finding that the more I practice, the much better I get at mulliganing decisions, and I'm finding how important they are. Unfortunately, I think it's the most important decision in a game of Magic is is keeper modern mull. Magic at least. I mean, limited is the same way, honestly. So. I think that you often have it's the it's the decision that has the most effect on the game that you're about to play and unfortunately a lot of times you have to do it with no way to gain feedback on the decision that you've made. So yeah, the only way to really learn it is to play a bunch of games and see how they affect what happens later. Yeah, and the last part to piggyback off all the practice is making sure you understand the meta and your plan and your roles and try to sculpt a sideboard around that. So one of the things that I like to consider are what are my somewhat unfavorable matchups and see if there's any reliable sideboard or maybe surprise sideboard cards that I can use to catch people off guard as I'm trying to squeak a win in a matchup that I may be less favored. Sometimes I also consider about what my absolute worst matchups are and whether or not I even want to dedicate any sideboard places to them or whether I want to do the ultimate pro move and just avoid that deck my whole tournament and never face the truly problematic matchups at all. The Colhan classic, we call it. That's right. Zach taught me that. <laughs> Stan, Stan for, for this tournament in particular, are you kind of doing like an off-the-shelf sideboard, like a kind of a, a net deck sort of sideboard with uh, your Arclight Burn strategy, or are you tweaking it in some way based on what you've been seeing or experiences you've had? Yeah, so two things. A, nobody loves pivoting 
on the Friday before tournament more than me. <laughs> so I'm not saying that I'm definitely playing mono red. I'm only saying I'm likely playing it. But to answer your question more specifically, I actually am planning to do some sideboard adjustments over the course of this week as I spend more time thinking exactly about how my matchups work and reflecting on some of the games that I've been playing over the last couple of weeks. Since I've done two Magic Online leagues with Mono Red, I also did an LGS league with it. And among those 14 games that I played, I probably encountered nine or 10 different decks. So it gave me a some frame of reference for how my matchups might pan out and what my more favorable ones are. So for instance, I'm somewhat nervous about Grixis Death Shadow. In mid-range in general, I find that I really suffer to early game disruption and big threats and well-timed counterspells. So I'm thinking about maybe I want to adjust my sideboard to mitigate some of that and improve my explosiveness against those decks. How so? How 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 am I going to sideboard against GDS? Yeah, what kind of cards do you think about bringing in? Here comes here comes Chandra Four. Is that what we're talking about? Or yeah, I don't, I don't have the answer yet. This is Monday, and the tournaments on Saturday, so these are literally the questions I'm asking myself over the next couple of days. I think Chandra Four actually is interesting. I'm seeing that pop up in some of the Is It Phoenix decks. I'm starting to wonder whether or not I even want to play Lightning Axe in that matchup. It was something that I used to bring in all the time. And I've also been a little too reluctant to use Blood Moon in that matchup. And I'm starting to think that even though it can be a tempo loss, that I'm undervaluing how good that card can be for me against the Death Shadow player. Yeah, something else I'm considering for the first time is adding Anger of the Gods to my sideboard. Just because seeing how Anger of the Gods was used by Is It Drake players over the weekend, especially as just a one-of made me think that it could improve some of my matches against humans and spirits, which I'm slightly unfavored, but are still pretty manageable when I'm explosive enough. Yeah, dude, and Dredge. Oh, Dredge especially. I mean, that's really the deck that I know I can beat because like, every time I play it in paper, I somehow pull it off. But every time I play it online, I always lose. So I know it's beatable, but I'm also aware that it's challenging. So I'm definitely starting to consider what I can do to improve that one matchup since it's not wholly unbeatable and i don't think it's an absolute lost cause yeah so stan i uh i like these sort of like thought processes and actually being prepared with your deck and your sideboard and have practice under your belt what else are you doing or we're thinking about yeah i mean i don't go to any nine round competitive tournament without some plans of how i'm going to nourish my brain and body along the day because nine ten hours of modern is going to really wear you out. It definitely wears me out. So, I mean, having a good night's sleep is obvious, but knowing how you're going to find food, water, or even caffeine along the along the way is super important for me. I know I start to play worse after two or three rounds unless I get some blood sugar flowing. Yeah, they make they make Cliff Bars with caffeine in them now, and I love them. Let's get them as a sponsor. Wow, you just blew my mind. Cliff Bars, get at us. I definitely bring Cliff Bars. I, I love nuts um, and granola. Also, my one of my favorite caffeine products on the go is called High Brew. It's just these canned espresso drinks. If you haven't tried it, the regular espresso one is to die for. I keep it in my fridge High all Brew, the time. Get at us. I would love a High Brew sponsorship. I've messaged them on Facebook. I've begged. <laughs> I've begged, and they've given me nothing. Team High Brew MTG. 
Here, here's your four guys. So yeah, make sure you are prepared strategically with your deck, but you also need to take care of yourself physically and mentally. So don't overextend yourself and, you know, make sure you have some nourishment along the way because so often these big tournaments are happening in convention centers where like you might get a microwaved hot dog for lunch. Oh man, it's brutal. Yeah. I, the the G, GPs are even worse. Like I often wander around. I mean, I actually, I don't know. I've, I've definitely played in PTQs and like hotel conference rooms where they, they wheel up like a, a hot dog cart with five hot dogs in it for 300 people. And you're like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And the hot dogs I've been are here like for $8. six hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just ketchup and mustard. <laughs> where, where is the relish? And, and mayo. <laughs> no sport peppers. <laughs> yeah. No celery salt. Where was the celery salt? No, I think another thing too, Stan, um, one thing I always do is like I use like fresh sleeves or I go over all oh. my sleeves and look for like bent corners. That is a great point is like one last thing you can do to prep your deck is make sure that you have sleeves that you're not going to get in trouble for. Because like if, you know, if especially if your sideboard's super fresh and your main deck is a little bit nicked up and then, you know, they can see your sideboarded cards. I mean, it's just, it's like some obvious stuff for like the real grinders that are listening to us. But if you're going to your first tournament, you want to, you know, get some fresh sleeves. Another thing is be careful with foil cards. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to a competitive rel tournament and you have Arclight, Fe- like, is it Phoenix? And the only foil cards in your deck are for Phoenixes. You better be sure that they're the same exact thickness as the other cards that are in your, in your deck in sleeves. Because if there's any way that they can possibly be picked out, you can get in trouble for that. If they warp even slightly, you can get in trouble for that. So just, uh, keep that in mind too. My uh, my scred deck is all very shiny, and I brought it to a tournament where I was testing out two cards that I didn't have time to get foil. So I had to bring it to the head judge and say, hey, are you able to pick out these two non-foil cards? Can I please use them? And they were able to shuffle and not be able to get you know cut to it a certain amount of times or whatever. But it's a real thing, and like someone could call you on it, so just be on top of it. Yeah, like a, a, a friend of the show, his brother, um, I remember he got DQ'd for having some foils in Oof. his deck. At like a, a regional type thing that he bought at the tournament. Oh, he bought yeah, a play set of foils at the tournament, put him in his deck, and he got DQ'd immediately afterwards. It's like, ah. Oh. I gotta say, I'm sad that I'll be the only dive down ambassador at regionals this year. I'm gonna try. We'll see. Uh we'll see. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. See, I'm gonna see how the next couple days go. All right. I think that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, please make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as they come out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way in helping new listeners find our show. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. One thing I would love to just hop in here really quick. We've been having good kind of engagement on Reddit and on the, on the podcast audience in general. I would love to ask the people that are listening right now, if you use Twitter, please follow us on, on Twitter. It's a good way for us to give you preview content or other kind of engage with you in other ways, let you know what episodes we're thinking about doing coming up and just kind of talk in general. Um, so please find us on Twitter if you haven't done that yet. At the dive down. Yeah, if you're really astute, you might even see pictures of us or photos of our cats. We all have cats. <laughs> Seems worth it on its own. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. We typically have some fun conversations on our thread every week at the Modern Magic subreddit as well as the Spikes subreddit. You can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv 
slash stan underscore islav where i'm always streaming modern on mtgo lately i've been doing mostly tournament testing but after regionals i'm probably going to start playing with some more weird brews that people are asking me to try out as always special thanks to the bands nowhere and space blood for letting us use their music in the show so until next week get out there and name a card in someone's graveyard Something takes a part out of me. Something lost and never seen. Corn, freak on a leash. <laughs> Where were you guys in 1999? <laughs> First grade. Oh my god, I was a fr- I was a freshman in college. <laughs> oh, Zach. 1999. You beautiful I baby was 20. boy. You. He was not in first grade. There's no way. What? Think about it. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> you I don't want to think about it. Use your head. <laughs>